Well, good morning again. I'm just so glad to, it is so good to be here with you again this Sunday morning, ready to worship the Lord. And I trust that God will speak to you this morning in the ways that you need to hear from him as we join together and look into his word. As we prepare to turn our attention now to his word, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace to us. God, I thank you for the chance that we have to come together and to be reminded, Lord, that it is in you that we find peace. Lord, that it is in you that we find stability in the midst of life's storms and the currents and winds and waves of life. It is in you that we are ransomed and bought from our captivity. God, every good and perfect gift truly does come from above, and we thank you for them. God, we pray as we turn now our attention to your word yet again that you would speak clearly to us, that you would speak through me. God, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would challenge us where necessary, and God, that you would drive us forward as we attempt to follow you to reach our community and the world with the grace of your goodness and the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had one of those weeks where it's just one of those weeks? You know what I mean? Like the weeks where just nothing goes right. Where everything, it seems, is just a cascading, you know, waterfall of bad. You know, you know what I mean? Like where it just seems like over and over again, it doesn't matter what it is, you can't seem to get ahead. Maybe that's just me, but I know that I've had times like that where it seems like nothing will go right. I remember specifically when one, one instance was when, when Michaela was getting ready to be born and, and everything went down with Robin. That, that particular day, we, we had had some issues with school, and so I had to go and meet with the president for some things. We, we won't talk about that, but I had to go meet with the president, and, and Robin had high blood pressure, so I, I sent her to the nurse. And so while I'm in the president's class later that day, in comes the nurse to get me, and she says, hey, I need Mr. Myers now can he please be dismissed? And, and he said, sure, go ahead. And, and as I got up to leave, she said, oh, you'll need to bring your stuff. You're not coming back. I'm like, well, this can't be good. So I walk with her down to her office, and she said, now, as, as we go into this room with your wife, I want you to act like everything's fine, but I need you to know that everything is not fine. She said, I, I need you to know that her blood pressure is so high that were she a 200-pound man, her heart should be exploding right now this is bad. You need to get her in the car and you need to go as fast as you can to the hospital. I said, okay, I get it. She said, no, you don't. She said, do not stop at Wendy's for a snack on the way. She said, as a matter of fact, when you get to the toll booth, do not stop at the toll booth. Keep driving. We'll deal with the consequences of that later. I said, what if the police pull me over? She said, that's all the better. You can get there faster. Keep driving. Everybody will get out of your way. Okay, sounds good. So we go to the hospital, and we get to the hospital, and the doctors essentially say, okay, you got high blood pressure, but we don't know why you have high blood pressure, and the bad news is that every time we give you medicine, it bottoms you out, which is bad for you and the baby, so we don't know what to do. Would you like to go to Morgantown, to Charlotte, or to Charleston, West Virginia? So we chose Charleston, West Virginia, because it was closest to home, and so we make our way there, and we find ourselves stuck in Charleston, West Virginia, with Robin in the hospital, the baby 
getting ready to come, potentially the doctor telling us that both could die, and we're stuck there. Now, as I'm sitting there, I remember that I have a paper due that week, and I have no computer and no way to get it to them. And so I'm like, I'm going to fail college because I'm stuck. Here, we'll figure that problem out. Someone brings me a computer and my car, and I get in the car to, to drive to get something that I need, and I hear a thump, 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 and the... I had broken the rear axle on my sister's Camaro. And so now I'm stuck in Charleston with no car, no money. My wife is in there going to die. I have no way to finish college, and I'm stuck on the side of the road. And I found myself in that moment going, you've got to be kidding me. Will this never end? And for several weeks, that's the way that it was. It just seemed like this never-ending torrent of everything going wrong. And it was like these waves continued to smack against me. And I found myself thinking, will this ever end? Will will, will things ever go the way that they're supposed to go? Will, Will things ever fall into line the way that they're supposed to? I know what the Word says, and I understand all this stuff about counting it joy when you're in trials, but for once, I would like just something to be okay. I would like something to go smoothly. And while it might not be like that, I would venture a guess that every one of us in this room, if we are honest, have had those moments. We've had those weeks. We've had those months. Perhaps we've had those years where it just seems like the dominoes just continue to fall and no matter what we do, we cannot get ahead of it. We cannot stop it. It's nothing to to do with our own actions maybe even, but they just keep falling and we find ourselves frustrated and wondering what is going on here and what are we going to do? And in those moments, I, I would argue that we often think, why should I keep doing whatever it is that I'm doing? And further, why should I keep following a God that doesn't save me when I'm in the midst of such despair? We find in Nehemiah chapter 6 that Nehemiah finds himself in one of those times of life where everything seems to be going wrong in a moment where everything really should seem to be going right. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 6 and then talk about what that means for our lives today. It says this in Nehemiah 6, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plains of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time Sanblot sent his aide to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the, gen- among the nations And Geshem says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are rebuilding the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. 
One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Nodiah and how she gave the rest of the prophets. She and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. Go ahead and stop there. But we see Nehemiah is coming to the end of his work. And we see that this great work that they had begun through all of the trials, and, and we, if you remember back, it, it, is, it is every time Nehemiah turns around, he's got someone coming against him. There is something that's coming up. Whether it's the people saying, we can't do this, this is just too much for us, or whether it's his enemies saying, what you're doing is against the law, what you're doing is, is a rebellion, and, and you need to stop it every time Nehemiah turns around, there's something else. And here, as he's drawing close to the finish, and it is a time for celebration and a time for, for worshiping the Lord, he, he finds himself once again being faced with difficulty, trying to figure out what he needs to do. And I see several things in here as it pertains to our relationship, both individually and corporately, in pursuing the Lord. Things that, that we need to remember as we follow the Lord, and as we face adversity, as we face difficulty, whether it be from outside sources coming at us or from inward doubts or the realities of our life. Whatever the case may be, these are things that we need to remember so that we won't lose heart and we will continue to pursue the vision the Lord has for our lives, for our church, and for our community first thing that jumped out at me as I began reading this passage this week and as I was studying is this, that almost is not enough. Almost is not enough. And, and I would argue that that is always the case. You know, the, the old saying goes that almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. You, you only have to get close enough in those two things. And everything else almost is to some extent a failure didn't quite get there. Almost is not enough. We see here with Nehemiah that the finish is in view, right? Like he's right there. It starts at the very beginning. It says, I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not sent the doors in the gates. It's a parenthetical, right? He, he does what my kids like to do when I say, hey, are you done with their homework? And they're like, yep, I'm done. I only have to do this little thing and then it's all the way done. Like, well, you don't understand what the word done means then. When I say, are you done, I mean, have you completed it all? That if you had to go to school today and turned it in, you would be able to get the appropriate grade. If the answer to that question is anything less than a full-bodied yes, then you are not done. That's true with everything. If you're, if you're loading the dishwasher and there are three dishes left in the sink... You have not finished loading the dishwasher. Now I get that there's the reality of, of their space. Wash them by hand. The, the dishes have got to be done. Almost is not enough. Almost is not the completion of the job. And here Nehemiah is. He can see in view the end. It's there. All of the difficult work, as a matter of fact, has been done. 
all of the heavy lifting is there. It's, it's completed, right? He's got to lift these stones, and they're, they're building this mile-and-a-half to two-mile behemoth, eight-foot-wide, huge, enormous, tall wall, and they've done all of that difficult building. <clears throat> it tells us in, in verse 1 that they'd rebuilt the entire wall. Not a gap was left in it. The stone structure of the wall was completed. And then we have the parenthetical that comes up. It says, but the gates were not set in place. The doors weren't there. We're, we're almost there. We're right there. The wall is all but done. All but done. The finish is in view. And word had spread throughout the surrounding region that the completion of the task was at hand. And while at this moment there are no gaps in the wall, there are still openings. If you, if you read some of the historical records of this and, the, and the re, you read about how they conquered cities, you understand why the enemies are trying to slow things down right now. Because a, a wall with openings is a breachable wall. As soon as those gates go up, they now have to go, rather than charging at open gates that are there, they have to siege the city, they have to build ramparts, and it becomes much more difficult to keep that city in subjection. The vision had taken shape, but the work wasn't complete, and everybody knew it. Almost, but then not quite. Now, Nehemiah is presented with what initially appears to be an opportunity to pursue peace with his opposition. At first blush, as you look at this, this seems like it could be a good thing. Because the other governors and, and the regents and the rulers in the community send him this letter and say, Okay, okay, Nehemiah, it's time, it's time to let... I know that we've had our difficulties, Nehemiah. I know that we've disagreed, but let's, let's let bygones be bygones. And let's, 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 come to the, let's come to the table and let's talk this out. We can, we can make this work, Nehemiah. You, you've done your job. You've done a good job. So come on, let's meet. And let's meet at this neutral site. And let's, let's come together at this neutral site and talk about how we're going to move the region forward together. Now is the time for peace talk, talks. I find it funny, I just, this is the first time I've read this passage out loud. Did you catch the name of the city where they wanted to meet? The name of the city is, oh no! It's, it's almost like a message that God's saying, hey, it's neutral site, but it's not. Oh no! And the reality is that they had been very smart about what they were doing because this, this site that they're trying to meet, meet at is just at the edge of the region of Judah. It's just at the edge of where Nehemiah was supposed to be and where he was allowed to be. So they're trying to get him away from the work as far as they could to stop what's going on. The meeting, though, does seem to be a concession of sorts. It's everybody's best interest to find a path forward. And we might be tempted to look at this and say, there's nothing that indicates to us that they're trying to do anything to harm Nehemiah. Sure, he says it, but it's like Nehemiah. You're a conspiracy theorist. Just take your, take your guard and go. W would dialogue not have been a good thing? Would coming to the table for peace talks to figure out what, why we were going forward, how we could go forward, would that not be a good thing? It's always in the best interest of all parties involved to keep the lines of communication open. Right? Don't burn bridges you might need to cross later. 
Refusal to engage in these talks would have seemed uncooperative and somewhat combative. Wouldn't it be right to forget and forgive and move from the past into the future? And there would be nothing from him engaging in said talks as soon as the job was complete. If we look ahead in Nehemiah, we understand that Nehemiah's vision for Jerusalem extended beyond the wall. But the wall was not completed yet. The task to which God had initially called him was not finished. And we, as we read the, the, the opening verse of Nehemiah chapter 6, open couple, opening verses, we, we might be tempted to think that, that Nehemiah is, is being confrontational, that he's trying to stir things up. He says to them, I'm carrying out a great project and not, cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? It almost seems like he's rubbing it in their face. Hey, what I've got to do is so important. I don't got time for you. I don't got time for you. So we read it with our American inflection, but the fact of the matter is that he's not being at all, he's not at all inciting anything. He's just pointing out the facts. Look, I have way too much work going on. I, I have too many things happening right now. Too many irons in the fire right now is not a good time for me. I need to focus on the work that's in front of me. That is, that is literally all he's saying. There's nothing in this text that would make us believe that Nehemiah is trying to poke the proverbial bear. He's not trying to start a fight. He needs to finish the wall. Until the gates were hung, the job was not done. And an incomplete task would be a vulnerable task. You notice who's the one that's been driving this ship every time there's discouragement. Who's the one that steps up and says, no, 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 come on, we've got to go. Nehemiah was the one that held the vision. Nehemiah was the one that was pushing it forward. Nehemiah was the one that was trying to draw people in. So him being taken away takes the linchpin out of things and the work very well could be stopped or at least stalled. It's kind of like when, I don't know how many of you watch football, but I, I like, I, I never played it, I never played this sport, but I understand the basic mechanics of it, and I enjoy watching how it plays out. But I found myself being really frustrated in recent years with the way some of the players play. Because they'll be running the, the it, they just seem to not have any sense in their heads. They get the ball, and they're running, and they're wide open. There is nobody close to them, and they're running, and as they go into the end zone, they drop the ball. Drop the ball. I can't tell you how many times I've watched that happen in the last couple of years. That as the player is preparing to reach their goal, as they're preparing to get the points, sometimes as they're preparing to win the game, they literally drop the ball. As they're going in for the game-winning score, and I wonder how often that is the case for us, that as we're ready to break the plane, as we're ready to break through the difficulty, as God is finally ready to bring us in to, to our victory, if as we're getting ready to cross the line, we don't just become too tired and drop the ball. I'll be honest, it's a fear of mine. That in my fatigue, that I'll fight and I'll fight and I'll fight and I'll push forward and I'll try to do that to which God has called me. Whether it's, it's in my life at home or in my life in the church or in my life in the community. And I'll push and I'll push and I'll push. And, and, and as Nehemiah says, my hands will become weak. And I'll drop the ball at the last minute. 
we have to remember wherever we find ourselves in life today that as we follow the Lord and as He calls us to various things, whether, whether it's in our marriage or whether it's with our children or with it, whether it's with the community organization that we're working with or whether it's with our job, whatever it is, God is calling us to keep going, to keep taking those steps, whether it's fighting with, with a, a, an illness that we have or whatever is going on in our lives and it feels like those waves are coming. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus and continue following after Him, continue pushing forward to the vision he has for our lives and for our community and we need to hold on to that ball all the way through the end almost is not enough we need to keep going now as Nehemiah is is dealing with this there are several things that come into view and I'm reminded that we need to be careful that we don't get distracted or discouraged those are the two temptations really that Nehemiah is facing are they not? Distraction by those things that are going around and things calling for his attention, even good things calling for his attention that, that are trying to draw his attention away from the best thing, which is the job that God has called him to. Discouragement because here these attacks continue to come at him and he's done nothing but, but what the king has instructed and allowed him to do. He's done nothing but what his God has called him to, but still he is being run down and we need to be careful as we face the realities in our life that we don't get distracted or discouraged as well. Note that Nehemiah refuses to turn his attention away from the vision that God has placed in his care. His, his vision was fixed and his efforts followed. Talked about it a few weeks ago with, with J.J. and riding his bike that wherever J.J.'s eyes go are where his bike goes. Same thing's true with our cars. Why they don't want you to text and drive because as good as you think you are at texting and driving, when you're looking over here and you're trying to drive there, you're going to eventually move your car over here. It's why we put bits in horses' mouths, is it not? Because we want to pull and we know that where their eyes go, the horse will go. We need to fix our vision, fix our eyes on where God is calling us. And Nehemiah has fixed his vision on the task that God has given to him. And he is going to finish the first thing before he moves on to the next thing. We need to keep first things first and next things next. Four times... Nehemiah is invited to meet with the opposition. And four times, Nehemiah declines the opportunity and dedicates himself anew to the work. He refuses to turn his attention away from that which God had placed on his heart. We need to not get distracted by the drama of everyday life. The drama of and pull of entertaining things, the, the drama of relationships, the drama of our world. Nehemiah stands firm, and, and Nehemiah's drama is peer pressure. He stands firm in the face of unbelievable peer pressure. Note, I said that he had four invitations, and that's because four times they come to him and say, Nehemiah, come meet with us at this neutral site for peace. And on the fourth time, they send him an opened letter, an unsealed letter that says, Nehemiah, you need to come do this. The first four are peaceful, right? The first four are, are, are complementary in na nature. Nehemiah, the wall is almost completed, so now as a, as a leader, we're going to welcome you to the table. The fifth opportunity is not so much an invitation as it is a bold-faced threat. They send a letter to Nehemiah, and we, need to and we see that in verse 5. It says, Then the fifth time Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. That's an important 
feature for us to realize and see as we read this passage. Because an opened letter is a red letter. Not the color red, but a red as in your eyes have looked at it. That's true now, right? Like, if there's something going on, if there's a political reality that people are facing, they might write an open letter that they then throw on Facebook so that everybody can read it. And that letter is addressed to someone, but the letter is really meant for everyone. And the whole intent behind putting one of those open letters, or, or, or perhaps we do it, it used to be called subtweeting, or, 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 or I guess it's always subtweeting, where we put a message on Facebook or Twitter or on Instagram, or, or we say something to a friend if we're a little more old school. And our intent in saying that to the friend or putting that online is not necessarily saying that to the friend, but ultimately to get the message to someone else. That's what they're doing. An open letter is a red letter. And the letter had undoubtedly been read by every leader throughout the region. The accusations that the letter contains are intended to make its way through the grapevine. Sambalot, Geshem, Tobiah, they're not stupid. They start rallying people and they send this letter around saying, and you see, the, you see the content of the letter. The content of the letter is, hey, Nehemiah is rebelling and this is what's going on. He's building this wall and he's putting up this gate, these gates and, and I heard, and Geshem says it's true. I heard and he said that it's true. So you can believe Geshem because Geshem is a trustworthy guy. Go ask him. Then Nehemiah, when he puts these gates up, he's doing this, he's building this wall so he can lift himself up as king. And I I heard, I heard, I didn't see it myself, but I heard that Nehemiah's hired some prophets. He's played some people and got them on his side, so we can't trust what they have to say. They're going to lie to us. Nehemiah's trying to lift himself up as king. They play the game. Rumor created. Rumor spread, and everybody's saying in the community, have you heard? You, you know, I don't, I don't mean to talk bad about anybody. You know, I, I'm, just, I'm just telling you what I heard. I'm not saying that it's true, I'm not saying, but I heard. Did you hear this? Well, I heard that too. Did you hear this? Tell me we don't do this. Be real with me here. We do this, and we do it in the most underhanded Christian way possible. Hey, Pastor, you really, you really need to pray for so-and-so because, I mean, I don't know that this is true, but I heard that they did such and such. And you might, you, you can talk to so-and-so because they told me and I believe them and they heard it from them. We go to a friend and say, you know, bless their heart. I love, I love them, but bless their heart. They, did you hear that they did? Did you hear what was going on in their life? Sometimes we need to not hear. Sometimes we need to leave the open letter closed. And let's let's take the sometime off. Most of the time, we need to close our ears, avert our eyes, and go on with our lives. This week, this could not have come, I, I kid you not, there's no way that I could possibly plan these passages with the realities that we're facing in the world in life and have them so perfectly line up. I don't care where your philosophical framework politically comes up, but if you have not watched the media this week and seen this at play, you are blind. The he said, she said, have you heard, was at work from both sides. 
I'm not here to say who was wrong and who was right. I'm just pointing out the reality that in a very short period of time, it went from just a few people knowing to everybody know, knows, and we're making our decisions based on half-truths and limited evidence. And everybody gets hurt when that happens. Well, since they couldn't stop Nehemiah by personal invitation, they turned to peer pressure. You know, if we look in, if we look in James... The New Testament warns us against this. James, it talks about our tongues being able to start fires. That, that, that it's with our tongues that, that we can burn people's lives to the ground. That we've got to be careful with how we're speaking about one another. It says this, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect and able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take a ship as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body, it corrupts the body sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. We got to be careful with how we use our tongues. We got to be careful with what we're saying and what we're passing on that we heard that was said about so and so. We need to make sure and confirm the reality of things before we move forward with them. We need to understand that sometimes we need to not listen to the claims that we're hearing. There are a few weapons at the devil's disposal that are greater than open ears and loose tongues that spread gossip and half-truths. And I mean that in two ways. That's not me saying, hey, you, don't gossip. I am saying that. But I'm also saying this. Be careful what you're listening to for your own benefit as well as for the benefit of others? Is, is what you're hearing in line with the fruit of the Spirit? Is it in line with the truth of Scripture? Or is it just drama that's meant to distract us and dissuade us from moving forward? Peer pressure and gossip are not just issues at local high schools. They plague the halls of our places of employment and the halls of our churches and the halls of our homes. And words hurt. Don't let anyone try to tell you otherwise. Once the words have been spoken and spread, damage is often done. And we need to make sure the words we're listening to and sharing are, the truth, are true and worth repeating. We love drama. Boy, do we love drama. It's great for entertainment. And in our world where we need to be entertained every moment of every day, not just the children, drama is great. But drama is damaging in the real world. And what we say 
can hurt the lives of those that we're living with and around. And it can hurt our testimony in the community and our ability to serve in the way that we need to. We need to not be distracted by the drama. Nehemiah has the drama coming at him in verse 5. But it doesn't just stop with that because the enemy also uses the word of God and men and people of God in an attempt to distract Nehemiah from the work, to discourage him from the work. Verse 10, we see that Shemaiah comes to Nehemiah and prophesies over him. That's what's happening. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home, and he said, Let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you by night. They are coming to kill you. He, he's posing. It, says, it tells us that he's a prophet. The passage indicates that. And, and, and so it, he's coming to Nehemiah, and when he's talking to him, he's prophesying. He's saying, This isn't just hearsay from others. This is the truth of God that is coming to you. And so, what we need to do, Nehemiah, is we need to run and hide. We need to go into the temple because there are gates and doors there, and let's shut the doors, and you'll be safe. It seems like wisdom, it seems like a good idea. The two temptations are there, though. The first temptation is to put his own, Nehemiah's own, good before the good of the people and the work to which God had called him. If Nehemiah is at risk, are not the rest of the people at risk? If there are armed people coming to kill Nehemiah, you don't think those people are coming for a fight at night? Sure, Nehemiah could run to the temple and save himself, but how many people does he leave at risk? The temptation is to put his own good before the good of the people and the work to which God has called him. The second is to actually violate the law of the Lord for his own protection. What he's telling Nehemiah is, let's go into the Holy of Holies. Let's go into the center of the temple and we'll lock ourselves in there. And Nehemiah rightly recognizes this man for what he is, a false prophet, and he shuts it down. He sees the lie and the truths. But sometimes the threat seems real enough and the suggestion sounds spiritual enough that it just might be right. The problem that Nehemiah notices is it wasn't in keeping with the word of God and was instead a pagan practice. The whole whole idea of going and hiding in the temple, the whole idea of not shedding blood in a place of worship was not a distinctly Jewish practice. It's not necessarily a distinctly Christian practice either. It's not in the word of God. It was, in fact, a pagan practice. So this this man, this man of God, this prophet, is mixing pagan practice, things that sound spiritual because they are spiritual, but in a pagan way, with the truth of God's word, and, and you put them together and they're subtle, and it's hard to separate them. But Nehemiah is able to separate. Our ability, much like Nehemiah, to discern half-truths from truth is always dependent upon our reliance on and understanding of God's Word. Our ability to discern half-truths from full truth is always dependent upon our reliance on and our understanding of God's Word. We need to know this book. We need to know what it says if we're going to live it out. Because there are those that will twist it and will contort it And we will so easily be led astray. Nehemiah sees the falsehood for what 
It is. What he said or she said should always be evaluated in the light of what God said. Now, I do find it interesting. I find it funny. It actually made me laugh when I read it in the passage. Because Nehemiah does what Nehemiah always does. Anyone care to guess what Nehemiah does in the face of adversity? Say it. He prays. Like, this isn't hard. If you've been here for even one of these messages, you know that Nehemiah, over and over and over and over and over, every time something comes up to him, Nehemiah is like, hey, just one second, and he turns to the Lord. Now, this prayer I find kind of funny. Because Nehemiah does what he always does in the face of adversity. But Nehemiah, in the face of this letter, going back, and then he prays again later, but in response to the letter particularly, I find it interesting because it says in verse 8, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. He says, what you're saying is false. This is not true. I don't believe you. Then he says in verse 9, they were all trying to frighten us thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not get completed. He's like, I see what you're trying to do here. I see what the enemy is trying to do. I see how the devil is coming against me. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to distract me. He's trying to dissuade me. He's trying to wear me down and get me to the point that my hands are just too weak and I'll drop them and I can't keep them up anymore. I see what you're trying to do. And it's almost inherently in the statement and it's not going to work. But then look at Nehemiah's prayer. This is great. Nehemiah says, this is what you're trying to do. But then I prayed, strengthen my hands. You know what that indicates to me? That the attacks were working. That Nehemiah found himself feeling vulnerable. That Nehemiah found himself feeling the weight of the attacks, feeling the weight of the work. And Nehemiah, understanding his own frailty and the frailty of the people, says, I know that this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to stop me just short of the goal. God, do not let it happen. Strengthen my hands and help me to push through. God strengthened my hands. I find myself needing to pray. After I read this this week, I found myself praying this over and over again. It is so simple and so succinct, but it is so powerful. God, the world is beating me down. The enemy is coming at me, and wave after wave after wave is coming at me. And God, I don't know that I can do it anymore. I don't know that I want to do it anymore, but God, strengthen my hands. Give me the power to keep working. Give me the strength to keep pursuing the vision that you have for my life. Give me the strength to pursue the vision that you have for my family. Give me the strength to pursue the vision that you have for my community, for my church. God, strengthen our hands. The work wears on you. The work of life in whatever phase, in whatever realm, wears on you. And if we're honest, the distractions begin to mount. Discouragement begins to set in. And we begin to wonder, not only if we're capable, but whether it's worth the cost of it. Fear and fatigue are good friends, and they exact a heavy toll. Even in the midst, in the face of this great wall and this amazing achievement, and right at the end, Nehemiah just has to hang the gates, and he, even in that moment, says, God, I am right here. Give me the strength I need to go this last little bit. Strengthen my hands. You know what's interesting uh, 
about academic studies is that most doctoral studies do not end towards the beginning. And most people would assume that, that you would get into it and you would get into the, the beginning and you'd see the syllabus shock and you'd see all of the difficulty it's going to take and that people at the beginning would quit. You know when most doctoral, most doctoral work comes to an end and people quit? In the process of writing the dissertation. That's insane to me. That people have spent tens of thousands of dollars have gone to hour upon hour of class, have written page upon page of paper, have done all the work, and they find themselves standing on the precipice, looking out at the end, and it is right there. And in that moment, they find themselves saying, I don't have the strength. I'm done. It's not worth it. That's my fear in following the Lord. In my own life, that as we come close to the end of a task or as, as God begins doing something big and we see the bigness, that we might become intimidated and say, I just don't have the strength anymore. Or we might, as Nehemiah could have at the beginning said, you know, this is pretty good. Let's just call this good enough. We're almost there. Let's just stop here. Because the weight of life will weigh on us. And we will be tempted to quit. We will be tempted to give up. The voices will chirp at us. We will find our hands weak. Nehemiah does the right thing and he turns to the Lord and says, Lord, strengthen my hands for the work. He does what we need to do. Focus through the finish. Focus through the finish. Nehemiah teaches us several things about what focus means and how it works in our lives. We follow the Lord. First, we must be willing to say no to what might be good in order to complete that which is truly great. We need to stop being distracted by good opportunities and pursue the best. We need to learn to say no. Nehemiah refused to compromise. He was offered middle ground, meeting at a neutral site, and instead he, re he refused and kept on plugging. You and I need to remember, secondly, to... Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't be distracted or detoured by issues or opportunities of secondary importance. Our tendency, though, is to focus on what's recent, what's now. And what is recent often becomes most important. They call it the tyranny of the urgent, that that which is jumping in front of us seems most ur urgent, and so we put other things to the side. We need to not do that. We need to pursue that which God has placed upon our hearts, the truth of his word and his calling on our lives, and keep the main thing the main thing. We need to put our fears to the side and carry on in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy, it tells us that we weren't given a spirit of fear and timidity, but instead of fear... In timidity, we are given a spirit of power and of love. That we're not given a spirit that says, you need to quit and give up, but we're given a spirit that says, you have the strength, you need to keep going. Trials and temptations will come our way as we follow the Lord and attempt to pursue His calling for our lives. And you and I need a laser-like focus and a dogged determination to complete the work that God has entrusted to us. We see success in the life of Nehemiah. You see here that, that the wall was completed in verse 15 on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. What they couldn't finish in years, Nehemiah and crew finish in just under two months. 
It's an amazing task. It's an amazing feat. But success came from faithful focus and following. Focus on relationship and reliance on God in all circumstances. Focus on the calling and vision God has placed on our hearts and lives. Focus on the truth of God's word for direction and discernment. And focus on the faithfulness of God for strength and courage to carry on. And the focus of Nehemiah and company demonstrated the faithfulness of God. As we look at the ending verses, it says, When all of our enemies heard, in verse 16, about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this was the work, that the work had been done with the help of our God. You notice that the, I remember I said this early, that oftentimes the curses that come out of our own lips often come back on our heads, and we see exactly that happening They intended to discourage and dissuade the people of God, but they pushed, and what happens at the end, as the work is being done, as God proves himself faithful, it's the enemy that loses strength in his hands. And God shows himself powerful and faithful. Nehemiah didn't lose focus trying to defend his honor, destroy his enemies. He focused on doing what God had called him to do and left the rest to God. And through his focus and faithfulness, God was glorified and victory was achieved. The same will be true in our lives. If we continue to pursue the Lord, it may feel as if at times the waves continue to come against us, that that the world is falling down on our shoulders. We, We might hear the words, we might be hurt, but we need to pray to the Lord, strengthen my hands and continue to pursue the vision that he has for our lives. We need to tune out the haters. We need to ignore the rumors, or even better than ignoring the rumors, we need to put them to bed. And we need to faithfully pursue the calling, the heavenly calling that God has placed on our hearts and on our lives, and trust that he will see us through as we continue to pray out, cry out to him, God, please strengthen my hands. God, may that be true of us this morning. May you strengthen our hands. May you give us the power that we need, the power of your spirit the power of your presence and your love to overcome and to move forward into the future you have for us. Strengthen our hands in Jesus' name.